Why does he do it? Surely Jesus doesn't need to be baptized as a sign of his own repentance. He's the one man who never sinned and never would sin. He is the pleasing son of the Father. But here he is in the water. What's his purpose? And what does it mean? Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And Jonathan, you can't just uh, throw a question out there like that and not expect a follow-up to that. What is the purpose? Why, why did Jesus go and get baptized by John the Baptist? This is a question that's intrigued me, I think, for some time. We, if we're familiar with the gospel story, we'll have noticed that Jesus does indeed step into the waters of baptism. And if we pause to think about that, I think it, we, we have to ask the question, why, why would he need to do that? John the Baptist has been calling people to repent, and as a sign of their repentance, they, they are baptized by John in the Jordan, and Jesus joins with these sinners who are repenting. And as we consider that and think it through, I think the, the conclusion we must reach is this, is Jesus is identifying with the crowd. He's, he's identifying with the sinners. He's, he's not staying far off, but he's joining with them. And one of the things we learn as we study the Gospels is that really everything that happens in the Gospel story leading up to the cross is is preparing us for the cross where Jesus will die in the place of sinners. And I think this is one moment where Jesus is preparing us to understand that he is going to identify with sinners, not as a sinner himself, but as one who is willing to step in and take the place of sinners at the cross. Well, we're going to look at this today in the book of Matthew. We're in chapter 3, and hope you'll grab a Bible and join us there as we begin our message called, The Son Who Fulfills All Righteousness. Here is Jonathan. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of bumping into someone in a kind of surprising place and out of context, in a place where you wouldn't expect to see that person, and then feeling slightly perplexed and slightly confused by what's happened as you try and just figure out why they're there. I had an experience a bit like that yesterday. We spent part of the morning over at the Children's Museum in Gatineau. I was just looking at one of the exhibits with uh, our youngest, and uh, I bumped into someone whose face I recognized from years ago. I did a kind of double take for a moment. I was thrown off guard, but I realized almost immediately that this was a friend I knew from 20 years ago. He and I had been involved in the same summer camp ministry over in the Toronto area, but I hadn't seen him in 15 years. And the last time I checked, he wasn't married, didn't have children, and wasn't anywhere near Ottawa. And basically, he wasn't a very likely visitor to the Children's Museum. But here he was with his wife and his children in Gatineau, and I struggled to make sense of it all at first. I mentioned that little incident because at the start of our passage today, we find John the Baptist in a moment of similar confusion. John is out doing what he's known for. He's baptizing repentant sinners in the Jordan River. And suddenly, verse 13, Jesus appears to be baptized by John, and John is completely thrown off guard. We saw last week that John the Baptist has been preaching a message of repentance in preparation for the Lord's coming. The Lord is soon to come, and you need to repent. You need to get ready, John said. And as a sign of their repentance, as a sign of their turning away from sin and turning to the Lord, 
people have been coming for baptism in the Jordan River. John has told them that the Lord who is to come, verse 11, is more powerful than I, so much so that John says, I'm not even fit to carry his sandals for him. John knew that the Lord would come to Israel. He had come to reign and he had come to rule. The kingdom of heaven has come near, says John. But what then happens in verse 13 throws him completely off guard. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But how can this be? Here is the Messiah, the Lord himself, the one whose sandals John is not even worthy to untie and to carry. He's now before John asking to be baptized along with all these repentant sinners. Surely the Lord should make his grand entry at the temple. Surely there, there should be a service of worship. Surely there should be an enthronement, something grand, but no. Jesus joins the crowd at the river and asks to be baptized along with everyone else. John can't fathom it, and he's a bit reluctant actually to do it. Verse 14, but John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? This is the wrong way round, Jesus. I'm the sinner, not you. I'm the one who needs to repent. I need to be baptized, not you. I've got my swimming trunks in the back of the van. I'll go get changed. You baptize me, Jesus. Let's do this thing the right way round. But Jesus is insistent, verse 15. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. John almost certainly hasn't understood why Jesus is doing what he is doing at the Jordan River, why he wants to be baptized. But John is eventually willing to go along with it, and he accepts the plan so far. But there's another surprise in the offing for John. His unusual day is about to get a little bit more unusual yet, because before the incident is over, the Spirit of God is going to descend on Jesus. And then John is going to hear a voice from heaven. The voice of the Father place his stamp of approval on his son and confirm his identity. The baptism of Jesus at the Jordan River is an incident that is as brief as it is familiar to us. And I think it's very easy for us to skim over it without necessarily really understanding what's going on. So this morning, we're going to slow right down and give some time and some attention to these five verses and try and unpack together their significance for the wider story of Jesus. As we reflect on this brief incident, I think there are three really important observations that we need to make about the identity and the mission of Jesus and as we kind of gather these observations and walk through the story, and as we put them together, we begin to see the huge significance of what took place that day 2,000 years ago at the banks of the Jordan River. I think it'll actually help us if we begin at the end of the passage and notice the one thing that we are most clearly told of all things. The truth about Jesus that shines through most clearly from the passage is the truth we are told outright at the end. We're told in no uncertain terms that Jesus is the pleasing Son of the Father. And that's verses 16 and 17. 
As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Well, here in verses 16 and 17, God the Father is going out of his way to show a watching world that this man, this Jesus of Nazareth, is his true son, is his appointed savior and king. It's a carefully choreographed and highly symbolic event. And we're meant to be in no doubt about who Jesus is when we reach the end of verse 17. The idea of sonship has come up already in Matthew's account of Jesus. Two weeks ago, we saw how Matthew quoted the words that the Lord spoke through Haggai the prophet many centuries before, words that he spoke about the nation of Israel, chapter 2 and verse 15, out of Egypt I called my son. And those words, of course, spoke of Israel as the nation was called out of slavery in Egypt and taken to the wilderness to worship the Lord. But as we looked at that little section, we recalled how the nation quickly turned to idolatry and to sin. With all that Old Testament background in mind, Matthew is showing us how Jesus enters into the story of Israel to be the faithful son of the Father and to carry out the mission and the calling of the Son. And so here in verse 17, the Father declares his pleasure in this faithful son, this child, saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. In chapter 4, we're going to see this faithful son of the father go out into the wilderness for 40 days, as Israel did, of course, for 40 years. And he's going to show himself to be obedient and to be trustworthy. He's going to demonstrate why it is that the father is so pleased with him. He's going to show himself to be the son who won't rebel against the father, but whose heart is one of obedience and faithfulness. Here is the Son who is to the Father all that he desires of his child. But of course, as this language of sonship is picked up, and as it shows us that Jesus steps into this storyline of Israel and enters into a calling in faithfulness, here we also see that Jesus is the son of the father in a very special sense, in a sense that Israel was not. He is personally the divine son of the father. He is the second person of the Trinity. He's not simply God's son in a kind of symbolic sense as Israel was. He is actually in his very being and his identity, the very son of God. This is actually a wonderful Trinitarian moment in the gospel, and it's a moment when the divine identity of Jesus just shines through. There are one or two moments, actually, in Matthew's gospel when the triune nature of our God comes particularly into view and into focus. We get it at the end of the gospel, actually, in the Great Commission, where the disciples are sent to baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And here in verses 16 and 17, at this key moment in the revelation of Jesus's identity and in the confirmation of the Father's pleasure of him, here in these verses we see all three persons of the Trinity involved. We have verse 16, the Spirit of God descending like a dove. 
we have the voice of the Father speaking in verse 17. And we have the declaration that Jesus is His beloved Son, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all together in concert, if you like, revealing that Jesus is the pleasing Son, the true Son, the Son who fulfills God's plans and His intentions. But the wonder of this moment is the fact that God will send His own Son to live out the story that Israel failed to live out. This Son is actually, personally, truly the Son of God. God Himself, in the person of His Son, coming down to be and to do what the nation did not. So, Jesus is the true Son who is pleasing to the Father. That's a key observation here, and that's a key lesson concerning the identity and the mission of Jesus. But seeing that Jesus is the divine Son, the pleasing Son, the shock then of what He does at the beginning of the passage is all the greater. Because as Jesus enters the waters of baptism, we see this divine and this pleasing Son of the Father identify Himself with repentant sinners. And that's our second key observation here. Jesus identifies Himself with repentant sinners. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message called The Son Who Fulfills All Righteousness. As we're taking a look at a few verses, verses 13 to 17 in Matthew chapter 3. We're going to get back to this message in just a moment, so I do hope you'll stay with us. But if you ever miss a broadcast or you want to go back and listen again, you can do that online. Come to our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org, and there you can stream the program or download an MP3. Again, that's at EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, let's get back to the message. Again, here is Jonathan. As Jesus enters the waters of baptism, we see this divine and this pleasing Son of the Father identify Himself with repentant sinners. And that's our second key observation here. Jesus identifies Himself with repentant sinners. During the Second World War, a number of European countries took steps to protect their royal families from the risk of abduction or attack. And some, of course, were evacuated to other parts of the world. Members of the Dutch royal family famously sheltered here in Ottawa for much of the war. And our Tulip Festival, if you know the history of that, is a happy reminder of that historical link. But while some royal families in Europe understandably chose evacuation during the war, the British royal family decided that they were going to stay put. And they were going to see out the war among their people and in their own home. There was a sense that they needed to be among their people and with their people so that their leadership would remain credible and so that they could boost morale and show strength. But even while they were doing that during the war and during the horror of the bombing of London and so on, it became clear that the royal family's experience of living through the war was rather different from the experience of many people in London who were living through the war. Many people in the capital suffered tremendous loss as their homes and their businesses were bombed. The royals could go and visit parts of the city, like the poor East End that had been just decimated by German bombing. And even though they were present, even though they were there, even though they were sympathetic, there was a sense of distance between them 
and the suffering people. After all, the royals could go home at night to Buckingham Palace and live in comfort and in relative security. But all that changed on the 13th of September in 1940, when Buckingham Palace sustained a direct hit from a German bomb. Suddenly, the king and the queen knew what it was for their home to be hit and their sense of security to be shattered. The queen, after the incident, spoke now of being able to look the East End in the eye when she visited. And there was a new sense among the people that the royals were not simply over them, but with them. The leaders now really did represent them in a new and a deeper way because they had entered into the same experience with them. There's a great deal going on in this incident at the Jordan River. But one thing that is very clearly happening is that Jesus is purposefully entering into an experience and a situation alongside this crowd. He is identifying with them, and he is doing so in order that he might be their true representative before the Father. We need to remember again where we are in the story. Crowds of sinners have come out from Jerusalem and Judea to the Jordan. They've heard John's message that the Lord is coming, and they need to repent of their sin. And they join him in, in baptism as a sign of their repentance. But now the Lord shows up as promised, and the first thing he does, well, is to be baptized by John. And John's bewildered. It doesn't make any sense to him. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tries to deter him. John's perplexed, but Jesus insists, and John eventually consents. So down Jesus goes into the water of baptism. He joins these crowds of sinners, and he enters the water himself. Why does he do it? Surely Jesus doesn't need to be baptized as a sign of his own repentance. He's the one man who never sinned and never would sin. He is the pleasing son of the Father. But here he is in the water. What's his purpose? And what does it mean? Well, surely this is a giant sign, a giant visual aid of the fact that the Son who will please the Father and fulfill the Father's calling for his child, this Son isn't brushing his people aside. It's not as though, well, God's people have failed to be faithful, so God is now going to give up on them, push them aside and try again with a fresh start. No, the son who comes in faithfulness is actually coming to identify himself with his failed people, to come alongside them, to come alongside these sinners who will repent, and then he's going to live out their calling and achieve their salvation for them. Well, that's interesting, and that's very comforting, I think, it's remarkable, really, that Jesus should do this, but why does it matter? It's symbolically rich, but why is it important? Well, that question takes us to verse 15, and it takes us to the heart of the passage. Here Jesus tells us why he does this and why he identifies with these repentant sinners. Verse 15, Jesus replied to John, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. It's right and fitting for this pleasing son to identify with sinners, says Jesus, 
to fulfill all righteousness. You'll have noticed that the language of fulfillment comes up really quite a lot in this section of Matthew's gospel. Again and again, we're told that in the person and the work of Jesus, the promises of God in the Old Testament are being fulfilled before our very eyes. We saw it a lot, actually, back in chapter 2, if you remember, verse 15. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Verse 17, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Verse 23, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. As Matthew uses this language of fulfillment, he does, he does it to speak of the fulfillment of a promise or an expectation in the Old Testament. And here it seems that he must be referring to the promise that God would call and God would create a truly righteous and holy people, a people who are in right standing with him and who then live rightly in the world. The whole Old Testament sets out the expectation that God's chosen people, his chosen nation, should be righteous and should be holy. We see the theme repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament. Take, for instance, Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 26. The Lord says, you are to be holy because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Be holy because I'm holy. I've set you apart to be holy. The rescued people of Israel were called above all to be a righteous and a holy people. But of course, because they were sinners like you and I are sinners, they failed to be perfectly righteous and they failed to be perfectly holy. They failed just as we would have failed. They didn't live up to their calling. And so alongside that expectation that God would create a holy people, the Old Testament also sets out the promise that God will make it possible for His sinful people to be made righteous. One of the most famous passages in all the Old Testament is found in the book of Isaiah in chapter 53. It'll be familiar to many of us. Here the Lord speaks of a coming figure, someone referred to as the servant of the Lord, who will represent the nation of Israel, but who will also die as the people's substitute for their sin. Listen to what the prophet says in chapter 53. He says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So here's the promise, here's the prophecy, maybe the most famous prophecy of all the Old Testament. This servant of the Lord is going to be righteous himself, and he will identify himself with transgressors, and he will justify them. The righteous servant, well, he's going to make people righteous. That's the promise of God in Isaiah 53. He's going to be numbered, counted, associated with transgressors in order to do that. And of course, that is exactly what we see the Lord Jesus doing here in Matthew chapter 3. As he enters into the waters of baptism, he identifies with, he associates with the sinners who he came to save. And so says Jesus, it's fitting for me to be baptized, to be numbered among those sinners today, so that I may fulfill the plan of God 
to make a righteous people for himself. Well, we have to pause the teaching right here, but we'll continue our message, The Son Who Fulfills All Righteousness, next time here on Encounter the Truth. Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported broadcast. We're able to stay on this station because of your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book written by Jonathan's friend, Pastor Josh Moody. He's written a book tackling some of the most common questions about church. It's called How Church Can Change Your Life, and there are answers to the 10 most common questions about church in this book. It's our way of saying thanks for your support. You can find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. Again, that's EncounterTheTruth.org or 1-833-998-7884. Well, thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.